G'day, Osha here. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've never listened to the show before, you may not realise uh, I make it with a great team of people, uh, Rachel and Andy and Mike and Bree, and there's a lot of us. Anyway, those people get paid, and to pay them, I need to play an ad. So you might hear an ad here. If you hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. If you don't hear an ad, we're going to hear Nikki Hutley say something cool. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We need to have plans. Stop subsidizing fossil fuels because we do that. There's hidden subsidies, massive billions and billions. Stop new exploration. The International Energy Agency, a very, very conservative body that is full of the fossil fuel sector, has said, for net zero, we do not need any new coal or gas. So no new approvals. Australia needs to stop holding on to the dream that coal is a part of our future. And it doesn't have to be. 40,000 people work in the coal sector. Yes, we need to help every single one of those people transition the way we did in the textiles, clothing and footwear industry a couple of decades ago um, at the turn of the century, the way we've done in the car manufacturing industry. We've done this before. We can reinvent ourselves. So you can see I get quite fired up about this. There are lots of solutions. That is the brilliant economist Nikki Hutley. And this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday, as the beautiful tones of Toehider bring us into another show. Thanks for being a part of the show. Welcome, if this is your first time with us, this is a show called Better Than Yesterday, does what it says on the box, here to help you make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show, guaranteed to do just that, make today a little bit better than yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg, I'm a TV host, I'm an author, I'm a podcaster, I'm a dad, I'm a stepdad, I'm I'm a zero emissions enthusiast. I'm an electric transportation enthusiast. And uh, what else do I do? I don't know. 
I'm someone who wakes up every day and, and, and has a routine of mental health stuff that I do in the first hour of waking to help me get on with my day. There's a lot. This is a show that comes out three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Uh, Wednesdays, is a guest from the past. And Fridays, I'm here with you. Shows go all the way back to 2013, and there's something for everybody. You can always get in touch with me. Send us your email at gmail.com or just find me on Instagram. Thanks for the uh, feedback about Friday's show, talking about climate anxiety and um, choosing to, you know, maybe go vegetarian or whether or not to bring a kid into the world. And um, I'm really grateful that Chaz asked that question so we could talk about it because it's important to talk about. And along those lines, that's why I've got Nikki Hutley on today. Nikki is a very, very experienced economist. She has, She's incredible. I did a gig with her in uh, a couple of months back with her and Dr. John Hewson, uh, the former leader of the Liberal Party in Australia. I shared a stage with him. And, and Nikki, she was amazing. And she's an economist, but not in a, in a graphs and, and figures kind of way. She has a way of describing microeconomic policy and macroeconomic policy that is just, oh, you go, oh, all right, I get that. You know, it's not you know, guarded by this wall of you don't understand why wage growth and house prices and, you know, such and such. You're like, I don't. She just basically has a beautiful way of explaining quite complex things. It's very important to have clear communication uh, when it comes to science, economic science, 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 physics, science, whatever, health science. She spent over three decades working in the financial investment markets in economic consulting. She knows her shit. And she's currently working as a counsellor with the Climate Council, so she's applying her absolute superpowers to helping out the Climate Council here in Australia. She's a, a remarkable human. You can find her on Twitter, Nikki Hutley, N-I-C-K-I-H-U-T-L-E-Y. Uh, she's also NikkiHutleyEconomics.com.au is where you can find her. This is a, a, a cracking episode, and I, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the chat, but what was wild was, I, as I said, I sat on stage with the leader of the Liberal Party in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Dr. John Hewson. And I couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth as far as climate policy and economic policy goes. I'm like, you're the leader of a, you kind of changed your mind that much. You know, you led a country with that in your heart. And it really goes to show you how far to the right the Liberal Party and the Coalition Party in this country have lurched. A story that a mate told me about his dad, who's in his 80s now, met um, his mum at a Liberal Party dance when they were in uni, I think. It was before nightclubs and before, you know, a long time ago, in the 50s, I think. Anyway, they met at a Liberal Party dance and, you know, so they voted Liberal their whole lives. And over time, he's in his 80s, he now votes Green. And he said to my mate, he said, look, I never changed my politics. I still feel the same way as I did back then. And the policies that I want to vote for are now the policies of the Greens. Now, if that doesn't tell you how far our politicians on the coalition side of things in Australia have lurched away from what their party was founded on, then I don't know what will. So there's two examples of, you know, just try to remember that there was a time when mainstream Liberal Party policies in Australia, which reflect what is now green policy, was the thing that people were voting for in electing. So it's fascinating to find out how far... The policies of our country have shifted. Um, chicken or egg? Is it that the people want that or that's the only way that those parties can maintain a majority? I don't know. That's a conversation that's above my pay grade. But I thought it was worth mentioning when it comes to voting, 
if you say, I'm going to vote coalition because my dad always voted coalition, well, they voted for a very fucking different party, okay? A very different party. It's not the same people and it's not the same policy. So have a think about that. Anyway, I'm so thrilled I've got Nikki Hutley on the show. She's a ripper. Let's get stuck into it. I'm so grateful we could speak today, Nikki. Where in the world are you right now? I'm in Artaman in Sydney. Right. So you are currently probably 11 kilometres from here, which is twice and a bit more kilometres I'm allowed to go. Yeah, yeah. I've never been so aware of what five kilometres means. The good thing is that having lived in the same house for 25 years, we've actually discovered all these amazing national parks that we didn't know existed. So, you know, you got to look for the silver linings, don't you? And that's really it. I, I love bicycles, as you know, and I am finding all kinds of wonderful places to go and visit with Wolfie on the cargo bike. And it's just the best, you know, and it's all within 5Ks of, of our home. But we are very, very fortunate in that we have jobs that we can do remotely, like right now. There are all the people that bring the things that we order from the internet to our home, though, uh, do not. And I guess, you know, I'm looking that, at that with my my brain with a vague understanding of how systems work, but I can't imagine you, someone who has an innate understanding of macro and microeconomics, sees this situation. You just wake up every day and watch just where the cogs are missing <laughs> in our systems. Yeah, it's very dystopian. You know, we economists like to have our neat little models and everything's just been blown apart. I mean, if you just look at last month's labour force data, for example, you know, we know that 4.5% unemployment is just complete BS. That's obviously not what's happening. But we just have these methods of very narrowly measuring things. And early on in the pandemic, one of my colleagues said the China forecast during a pandemic was like trying to catch a falling knife, you know, whichever way it landed, you were going to end up in trouble because you just can't predict the way people are going to behave, firms are going to behave. But there really is this inequality element to the pandemic that is, you know, deeply concerning and is going to require some significant policy tweaks when we do get to the other end of this, which hopefully won't be too much longer. I'm sure I'm not the only person that got a sense of this early on in 2020 when the inequalities in our community and the pressures being faced by different parts of our community were, for me, just this tiny, tiny, tiny little microcosm of what is already starting to come in the climate space and what is definitely to come in the next 20, 30 years. And this is almost an opportunity of like, all right, so this is what happens when you know we essentially rip the gaff tape off society and people are no, we're no longer can rely on people to fill the gaps of where systems don't equate and we're like, well, this person will just chuck in 15 minutes over time and the job will get done rather than fix the system that hasn't allowed them to get it done during their roster. When this all started, did you kind of get a similar sense? Um, no, I, I don't think we fully understood, you know, just how all these you know different chinks in the armour were going to come and break wide open. And I think... Maybe in Melbourne they understood it better last year, but I think it's really become apparent in Sydney this year because we are seeing, as you said, the people who can't stay home, who are putting the food on our shelves, who are, who are having to do those jobs, you know, the health workers, frontline emergency services, even teachers, you know, remote teaching is so difficult. So whilst there are some of us who can sit comfortably from home, just that dynamic I don't think really came home that clearly 
to some of us who, you know, I like to think of myself as incredibly egalitarian, but I do live in a bubble, unfortunately. One of my kids, however, lives in Western Sydney with her partner. And, you know, they say they've never been so aware of discrimination and inequality. They're literally right on the edge of the Parramatta LGA. But, you know, they've they've been living amidst all of, of this. And they say, you know, it does play out very differently. And especially for my daughter, who's lived both, you know, in the privilege of the lower North Shore bubble and living in Western Sydney amongst more regular people doing all different kinds of jobs. You know, she said it's really brought it home to her. And she fortunately talks to me because she doesn't let me get away with any anything. The justice and equality part, though, that comes from parents. And where did that start for you, Nikki? I'm actually not sure. It's a kind of incremental thing. I grew up with a fair amount of privilege. My brother and I were the first to go to, to university, but um, very much encouraged by our parents to do so. Always expected to have careers. But again, we lived in in a bit of a bubble and I wasn't particularly aware of, of what was going on in, in the wider world, apart from when my mother used to say things like, when you know, we didn't want to eat our Brussels sprouts, think of the starving children in Africa. The classics. We'd say send it to them, um, <laughs> you know, the typical world brat response. But it was meaningless. But so I started my career in foreign affairs. And that, of course, really opened up my mind to, you know, just the broader world. Um, the first area that I kind of was was engaged with was um, Philippines, Thailand, and Burma, all of which, of course, or Myanmar as it is now, all of which, of course, have incredible underprivileged. Myanmar was at that time, I think it still is, you know, the, um, had the lowest level of per capita income in, in the world, you know, and you, your eyes are opened. And then I was a market economist for a while. And again, you're kind of just so involved in the day-to-day and buy, sell, whatever. And it wasn't until I moved into policy economics, and that was only about 15 years ago, and I slowly started to work on climate change and on social impact issues. And I guess that's where the passion has grown. So there was no single light bulb moment. It's been a, a slow and gradual transition. And I just think, you know, I am incredibly privileged and it's up to people like me to take that privilege and to do, you know, give back where you can. Not everybody's in that position, but where you can, you know, do whatever little bits you can do to to make shift the dial, you you know, it's upon you to do it. There's sometimes our leaders will say, well, you're lucky you don't live in this country. You're lucky that you're allowed to protest. You know, do we really have a scope here in Australia, do you think, of what it is we actually have? No, I don't. Australia, though, has a lot of gaps, and the most obvious one, of course, is between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And when you look closely at disadvantage and just how we are getting that so wrong in terms of not just providing the right supports, but thinking the way Indigenous people do. And I'm very lucky to have worked when I was at Deloitte with um, some of the Indigenous partners there who really shifted my thinking about what we think of as being, you know, something that you might aspire to is just not necessarily culturally appropriate for other people. And there's this real mindset we have about what makes a good economy and it's, you know, we've got great economic growth and household incomes are rising and you own a house. And we've got this real narrow view and at the, the risk of sort of coming across as a sort of communist, um, I, I you know, I, I believe in economics and I think it does a lot of, you know, markets work their magic, but there are lots of failures as well. And there are lots of different ways. I love um, the Kingdom of Bhutan has, you know, gross national happiness. And they don't just look at the economy, they do look at well-being. And of course, you know, New Zealand's moving in that direction. Lots of other countries are. 
And so to get back to your question, you know, there are lots of us in Australia who live this massively privileged life. And I do have to remind myself and be grateful every, every morning when I can whinge about, you know, I, have, I haven't been able to get up to the beach lately because there are so many Australians who are still doing it tough and they tend to be my minority groups. You know, we don't make life easy for everyone and we don't necessarily always spread the love and the wealth around as much as we could do. And I don't like that aspect of our society. There is so much about Australia that is brilliant and wonderful. And, you know, we see when we're in a crisis how people do behave caringly, um, particularly through, you know, bushfires. We're incredibly generous when it comes to charities, you know, through a crisis. But there is so much more that we could be doing through our formal political process, through policy, to address those inequalities, I I believe. There's an argument in some ideologies of government that, you know, if you have a go, you'll get a go. Is, in your view, just a pure ac- economics, the numbers, the way, you know, policy levers get pulled and if outcomes meet that, is that a flawed idea? It's a deeply, deeply flawed idea. And I'll give you a terrific example. So I do a lot of work with not-for-profits and, you know, we were talking with one quite recently and they were saying, yeah, they had a guy, he had been homeless, they sort of got him brushed up a bit. He really wanted to get a job, but he didn't have a great level of skills, but he also had, he, he had been an alcoholic, he had a couple of front teeth knocked out. They got him all dusted up together and they got a dentist to fix the front teeth. And the confidence that this man had, he went out, he was able to get a job, low skill to start with, but he got something. He wanted to be there. And there is this idea that people who are on unemployment benefits are somehow just these bludgers who sit there. There are lots of people who don't have the benefit, who, you know, who grew up in households where they, they didn't have the room to study quietly and in peace. They didn't have parents who could buy them the books that they needed or, or the equipment. We know through COVID there are heaps of households where they don't have enough internet you know, bandwidth for everybody to study when they need to. So we need to help these people. But what we also need to understand is that economically, if we do a cost-benefit analysis, investing in these people by providing these supports, we actually generate heaps more benefits. You know, it costs us something, yes, and it's the same with climate, and I will get there. You invest something up front, and yes, that comes often from, it needs to be from taxpayers because there's what we call a market failure. The market doesn't deliver these outcomes but it delivers returns to Australians, to the taxpayers, because down the track, by giving people the right supports, particularly when they're young, we stop them falling into all of these terrible outcomes and all of the cost to society, whether it's, you know, through poor health, through crime, you know, through unemployment and welfare payments, all of those things get avoided if we get in early or at least get in somewhere, but preferably early, and help these people to, to be their best selves. But the idea that, you know, it's pure bloody-mindedness that they're not out there earning a job that can, you know, help them to afford a house in Sydney, it's quite ridiculous. I mean, obviously, you, you do need to put in effort, but it's effort alone sometimes just isn't enough. It's so fascinating that you speak because, you know, there's been a bit of talk about it lately with the unemployment figures about how this one particular week of journalism in the 70s changed the public's narrative on unemployment benefits. But I understand why it's an easy go. It's like I've been working my ring out 60 hours a week to put food on the table for my four kids. That person's getting money for free. Not fair. And I understand that emotion comes into that. I understand that that's an easy emotion to play on if you're trying to sell a newspaper or get a ratings click for your TV show. But the emotional 
story is so much easier to tell than the actual science, which what you're describing. That's got to be a real challenge for you. Uh, look, I think, you know, people just, the word economist, people tend to turn off, you know. Economics is known as the dismal science, although people don't necessarily know why that is. It's not because it keeps people depressed. It, you know, economics is not just about people making money. It's not about banks. It's actually about well-being. The core of economics is about people's well-being and how to make life better, to uplift all of us. And if only I could get people to understand that. But just back to the idea of, you know, that the doll bludgers, you know, and that those headlines, if you look at what's happened with um, welfare payments over the last 25 or so years, the standard of living of people on welfare has dropped by 40% relative to others. So whilst it may have been true in the 70s that people said, oh, you know, I can live on the beach and I can do this, that and the other, and, you know, maybe there were some, and of course there's always going to be one or two people who say, well, you know, flip the finger at society and say, I don't care, I'll do this. But you try and live on 40 dollars a day. I mean, you know, it doesn't cover your rent, for goodness sake. It's not as if there's a, a strong incentive. And I know there are people out there who run their own small businesses and who do work those 60 hours, you know, and they're killing themselves because they're working every hour of the day and, and, and night. But to say that others are, are just not doing it because there's an incentive, I just think that's a, a real, a lack of understanding. And again, I come back to that, um, I've been watching Ted Lasso. I love that. And he I quoted, love it so much. It's the most beautiful show. <laughs> Isn't it just gorgeous? But um, he quoted one of my favourite poets of all time, Walt Whitman, and he said, you know, be curious. And that's it. Be curious, don't judge. And I thought, you know, yes, I love this. This is my new mantra. I know it's a TV show, but I just, there's so much in that. But I love that Walt Whitman quote. You know, he's a great American poet and that be curious, don't judge. You know, understand how people get to where they are. I have the experience, and my life looks very different now to when it was, but I have been on the dole twice in my life, and it was mind-numbingly humiliating, and it was horrible, and it felt awful, and I felt at the whim of the government, um, I felt controlled, I, I felt useless. Uh, it, was a, it was a shit place to be. And at the time, unemployment in Queensland for people in my age group was around 12%. There were no jobs. It Mm. was really, really bad. And my brain turned to porridge, Nikki, because I stopped using my brain. I just, it just went to shit. I could no longer count bus change in my hand. You know, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible place to be. It certainly wasn't what people think. Oh, you're just sitting around playing Xbox. No, man. It was no fun. It was no fun. There was no purpose. There was no meaningful purpose. And this is the tricky part, I guess, with with your business of being an economist is where does the the numbers and the policy levers, where does that match up with giving people meaningful work and the overall societal outcomes of giving meaning to people's purposes and, and, and where they fit in society? Uh, that must be the tricky transition for you. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Our youngest daughter is definitely a very square peg. I'd say she's a shining star, but does not fit into the round holes of um, conventional societal norms, let's put it that way. And we feel lucky that she, you know, we managed to get her to university and out the other side. She's incredibly smart. She finished high school at 16, went straight to university. And I think that was a challenge. But, you know, she's like you, a very creative person, has a lot of demons. She's also, she won't mind me saying, transgender. And faces incredible discrimination in trying to just get a job of any sort. 
and luckily now she's living in Japan. She's doing translation work. She's found her sort of little niche. She gets to do a bit of music and things. But I've always had the view, well, you know, just get a job, any job, just start somewhere. And I think AV has made me question that view. And I spoke to someone not that long ago who was who had come back from overseas, this is before COVID, had been studying overseas, got an MBA and couldn't afford to live in Sydney, was staying with their parents in, in country New South Wales and, and really wanted to get a job that used that MBA. And the idea that they were being pushed by the you know, employment services to pick up any job is actually wrong. What you want to do is to say, if it may take you three or four months instead of three or four weeks, but we need that person. We've invested and they've invested huge amounts in their education. We want to make sure that they're doing the job for which they've been trained and for which they're enthusiastic because they're going to do a lot better at the job than if you just put them in anything. And we already have far too many Australians who, for a variety of reasons, not least because of the lack of housing affordability, don't do the jobs for which they, you know, are trained, for which they're passionate. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about saying just get a job or just get a better paying job. You know, there are lots of things that drive the decision and I think there needs to be a balance between what you do following your passion and your your dream because you know that's really important to people not giving up on that but also being able to you know put that food on on the table and it, it's a hard decision and I guess I, I think about these things differently when you actually you know it's like the old saying walk a mile in someone's shoes mm. you know until you listen closely to somebody who's in that position you know we all come with preconceived biases about things from our own little bubbles. So it's good to just kind of take that broader view sometimes. The personal experience you have of these situations would allow you to then go to people in policy and say, listen, I can share this story. This person's allowed me to share this story. And there's a personal story there that allows the other person to kind of find some empathy. And you're talking about a real world situation. When you mentioned the homeless person earlier, we can all relate to that real world situation. When you're talking about climate and you're trying to talk about this thing in the future that every single piece of science is proven to be like, it is going to happen. There's no if, it's a when and how bad. That must be difficult when you're trying to talk about this kind of almost imaginary idea and asking people to prepare for something that's not here yet. That's got to be a challenge for you. Yeah, well, some of us might argue that it actually now is here. And it certainly was a lot more difficult 15 years ago when I first started working in this space and it was really very much this abstract concept. I do think now, you know, we've already seen 1.1 degree of warming. In Australia, it's 1.4. You know, we are seeing right around us the the rise in extreme events. You just have a look at the last summer, not just in Australia, but in in Canada, in Europe with wildfires, with flooding, the melting of the the permafrost in in the Arctic. You know, and if you look at the head of Munich Ray, which is, you know, one of the biggest reinsurers in the world there, sort of global chief scientist has said, you know, this is climate change in action that permafrost melting, for example, was 600% less likely to have occurred in the absence of climate change. You know, we are seeing the rate of species extinction accelerate as well as seeing obviously more and more extreme events. So hopefully this is the wake-up call. But obviously it was different 10 or 15 years ago that we weren't seeing as much and it was much harder to distinguish. But if you look at any amount of statistics, and unfortunately I'm buried in these day by day, you know, you look at the number of extreme losses, um, the US records extreme events over $1 billion. 
and you know we've gone from an average of, of sort of seven a year a couple of decades ago to that's basically doubled um, 21 in the last year you know we can see it unraveling before us and it's a real shame because my colleagues at the climate council long before I joined a decade ago were saying the previous decade was the critical decade and we did nothing we did worse than nothing we, we let things get a whole lot worse and now this is the final countdown if we don't act now. But even when you do that, the economics of climate change are such that even with what we're seeing now, the really huge numbers of what how this is going to come down the pipeline don't really come for another 30, 40 years and beyond. So we're talking about future generations. And human beings are such that we value the here and now more than we do something down the track, which is why we pay interest on savings, because we're encouraging people to not have that money and spend it now, and we're encouraging them by giving them interest on that money to, to hold off. Now we have to have a really ethical, intergenerational conversation around what do we owe to our kids and to our grandkids, and that's sometimes very hard for people. It's the same reason people still smoke. It's because they can't see the damage they're doing and they, they have this abstract concept, well, I might get lung cancer in 30 years' time, but, I, you know, I'm enjoying myself now. As humans, we're just not very good at that abstract thinking. When you say that, it does kind of, it makes me feel a little less angry. You know, it's just, well, we're doing the best we can with the way that our brains are wired. We are not wired to take action on a threat that is 30 years from now. We're not. We're wired to take action on a threat today or not even this afternoon, like now, you know. So as humans, we we kind of shitty. We wait for the heart attack before we start to get fit. You know, we don't stop eating the burgers. We keep eating the burgers until the doctor puts a stent in our heart and says, right, no more cheese, mate, off your pop. And in many ways, and I remember hearing it early on, it broke my heart, but then it's kind of like, well, I heard a bloke say the economics will work it out. The economics will work it out. And it's kind of, for me, it breaks my heart a bit that that's how it is. But then I'm also like, well, capitalism got us into this. Maybe capitalism can get us out. Do you see, what role do you see economics playing in taking action and pulling levers and getting us to a different pathway? Well, unfortunately, economics is full of what we call market failures. So the market, you know, in economics is when you study economics at university, you have this. In a perfect world, all these conditions are met and these outcomes happen and your mathematical models work beautifully. The trouble is we don't live in a perfect world and people don't behave rationally. And there's an idea, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for your listeners here and talk about something called externalities. And that's the idea that when we produce something, there are side effects, these externalities that have consequences for people other than the person that produces the product. And these can be good things and they can be bad things. So if somebody builds a beautiful garden, you know, the people that walk past on the street, they didn't pay for it, but they can walk past and they can look over the fence and go, isn't that beautiful? And they get joy from that. Conversely, when we produce things that create greenhouse gas emissions like carbon, that creates a negative externality. It creates a big cost, but it's not one that is paid for. It's just, it's out there and we know that over time, the reckoning will come. We will pay for it in terms of increased climate risks and climate events, but no one's paying for it now. And the market has failed. And the only way we can deal with that, and economics has a solution, but that solution is to put a price on carbon and to say, 
you are causing this amount of damage. And there are lots of estimates out there of what that dollar of, of carbon looks like. And there are many countries that already have a carbon price. But they're getting a bit pissy because they're doing all the hard work and we're sitting here doing nothing. Now, the International Monetary Fund has proposed that we have a, a carbon price floor so that every country gets involved. Some people might have heard that the European Union is, is getting antsy and they have actually voted to adopt what they call a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And what that essentially is, is just saying, okay, you don't have to, to put a price on carbon, but if you want to export anything into our country, you will pay what the producers in our country pay so that we don't, you know, you don't have an unfair competitive advantage. You know, the World Bank, obviously we're hearing from the UN General Assembly, all this language coming out is we have to act on climate change. And the reason that we haven't is because the market doesn't work. And economics says when the market doesn't work, governments have to intervene. And the way they intervene is to put policies in place. It's to promote renewable energy. It's to promote the electric vehicle uptake and making sure our buildings have um, are as energy efficient as possible. So government needs to be very proactive to overcome the market failures. That's what economics tells us. So economics can help us. It has a solution. Capitalism doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm not saying that capitalism is, is blanket bad. There's lots of good things about capitalism, but it needs to be moderated. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. What do you think it would take for particularly our Australian government to pull some of these levers and start making some moves to support the market? Well, the very first thing they could do is to actually say, we accept the science of climate change. We acknowledge that this is a massive problem and an urgent problem, and we will have a net zero target for all of Australia. And to be honest, 2050, which all of the states and territories have, um, other than the ACT, which is 2045, is not enough. The work that the Climate Council has done is that you know, we've just wasted so much time, we're going to have to really speed up. And this is the international language that we're hearing. So we're hearing lots of countries get more serious about what they'll do by 2030. But we need to have plans. And it's fantastic that state governments are doing a lot. You know, the New South Wales government is really shining a light on this. They're putting transition pathways in because people will lose jobs. We will have industry fade out. But the economic opportunity of new industries to replace those the New Zealand government is working really closely with the cement industry. That's a very energy-intensive industry. They're working closely with them in a partnership to say, let's be world leaders in green cement. In Sweden, they're doing the same with steel, which is now, you know, Volvo's experimenting with it in their new car models. Like, get on the front foot, have a plan. So we need to have an objective. I don't agree that you need to have all the details worked out before you have that objective. Let's just say net zero 2040 or even if they can only cut with 2050. But let's let's say net zero 2040. What are the transition plans that we need for the industries that are going to be affected? Look at the areas, look at the skills, look at the opportunities, put something in place there. Do we need to provide financial support? Do we need to invest in more infrastructure? South Australia, investing in the hydrogen hubs with the private sector, government and private sector working together to produce green hydrogen, so not gas-based, based on renewables, you know, making sure that that happens. Stop subsidising fossil fuels because we do that. There's hidden subsidies, massive billions and billions. Stop new exploration. The International Energy Agency, a very, very conservative body that is full of the fossil fuel sector, has said for net zero, 
we do not need any new coal or gas, so no new approvals. Even the Chinese government has said they will stop building coal-fired power stations offshore. They've announced that, you know, just announced that. They'll stop building them in China within a couple of years. We'd like to see them do it quicker, but at least they have target dates to stop doing things. Australia needs to stop holding on to the dream that coal is a part of our future, and it doesn't have to be. 40,000 people work in the coal sector. Yes, we need to help every single one of those people transition the way we did in the textiles, clothing and footwear industry a couple of decades ago um, at the turn of the century, the way we've done in the car manufacturing industry. We've done this before. We can reinvent ourselves. So you can see I get quite fired up about this. There are lots of solutions, but we absolutely have to put in place and we have to help people understand that where we bear some costs, so if we're investing in, in additional infrastructure, you know, let's not think about putting more roads in. Let's think about the bicycles and the trains and the electric public transport. But where we do need the right infrastructure to move around, you know, if it's solar energy, people like Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forest, no dummies when it comes to, to business, are, are looking at solar arrays in the Melbourne Territory that can export to Singapore. What I'm saying is there may be some costs that we have to bear in the short term but these are infinitesimally small compared to the shocks that are coming down the system. If you, people think COVID was bad. We are facing COVID-sized shocks, you know, within a matter of decades, within the life of our kids and grandkids on a regular basis from climate change. So I know it's hard, but we build today, we build new economic opportunity, we help transition and we create a safe and secure future. It sounds so bloody obvious, doesn't it? You wonder why there are some politicians, and it's really not that many. It's We are being held to ransom by a very small community. This is the thing, and when you mention the numbers, it does infuriate me. What, when you say held to ransom, how are we being held to ransom? Well, I think when we're holding others to ransom, you know, by the threat of climate change that comes from Australia... But what is happening is other countries are embedding a, um, a carbon price and we're going to see the first cab off the rank in doing something about this is the European Union. So they are basically saying, if you don't put a car price on carbon, we'll yeah. put one on for you and we will make you move. But we're also seeing that countries saying we don't want to invest. So we are seeing company after company, fund after fund say they are going to divest from fossil fuels. They're not going to invest in those companies. And at a certain point in time, they will stop investing in those countries. I mean, you know, you can see what happens when you make the French angry <laughs> over, the, over the submarines. This will have implications for our climate relations as well. We will be shunned. And there is a direct cost here because if other countries and companies don't want to invest in Australia because we're not acting, that means that the cost of capital, the interest rates that you pay to invest, are going to go up. And that affects every single Australian. It means less investment. It means fewer jobs. It means slower growth. And people have to, I realise this is incredibly difficult and complex concepts, but it's not just, oh, what do we pay for to put a price on carbon now for our future? There are direct flow-on impacts that will happen today. And whilst carbon border adjustment mechanisms may not have massive implications for our economy, they will affect our trade flows. They will see exports fall. There will be some job losses as a result of that. So we need to get on the same page as everybody else. Otherwise, we will be shunned and we will lose out on the opportunities. We're in a country where uh, 
particularly our conservative governments, who claim to be economic rationalists, mind you, uh, Nikki, uh, love a three-word slogan. They love to stop boats and they love jobs and growth. So uh, from what I hear you telling me, if you want jobs and growth, there literally is only one pathway. We are six or so months out from a federal election. What are we looking for from the people who are talking at us? What's going to be bullshit out of their mouth? And what's going to be, okay, that's taking us down actual growth, actual jobs, actual future, and not a country that is being forced into decisions by other countries? Yeah. I really worry about the major parties because on one side there's complacency, everything's fine, don't nothing to see here. And on the other side, there seems to be a let's just hide under the box because we tried to have a whole lot of policies last time and we got got rejected. And it, it is difficult because people find it difficult to take so much in. Every single policy option that a government brings in pretty well, but well, almost without exception, there are always winners and losers. And the losers tend to be very vocal. We, we see this with, you know, planning. You know, we want to put more housing in areas to make it more affordable and the NIMBYs come out and say, no, please don't do that. It's always a difficult thing for policymakers. What is not difficult on climate is to see what is a, a, a reasonable path. So what I want to see is a firm commitment to net zero, a pathway, some policies in place that will support us doing that. I think a carbon price is going to be incredibly difficult and I don't expect any body to run on that. I don't know if Australia will be ready for that for some quite some time. I suspect we'll end up getting there. But, you know, I'm not suggesting that we do that in the first instance. The first instance is just to say I meaningfully want to do something and to stop talking about inner-city latte-sipping people who have every right to be concerned about the future of the environment and climate change and the planet and think about all of Australia, what is the best policy outcome for all of us? How do we manage this transition? It's often referred to as a just transition. How do we help those that are going to be affected and how do we make sure we get the best outcomes for everyone? I'm looking for someone to actually commit to doing something on climate change. We've already got Zali Stegel there trying to get her climate bill through valiantly. I'm looking for people that there are so many issues out there, a federal ICAC, you know, where is the accountability? We have seen so much corruption and, and rorts, gender equality. You know, where is the accountability to our politicians to do what we as communities believe they should be doing? And for me personally, I'm looking at independence as possibly the, the sort of shining light of, of hope. You know, you see people like Zali, like Kathy McGowan and, Helen Haynes following her. Karen Phelps, you had in your electorate very briefly, uh, yeah. but managed to do, you know, the Medivac bill in, even in such a short period of time. Maybe the time of the independent has come to sort of give a clean sweep through federal politics at least so we can just move away. I, As a very young person, when I started out, I've mentioned I started out life in foreign affairs, and I actually had a six-month stint working for Andrew Peacock, who was the Liberal shadow member for foreign affairs. And he embodied, you know, a lot of what I like, which is rational economics. You know, we do have finite resources, but with a huge social conscience and, you know, environment wasn't such a big thing for in the mainstream in those days, but it should be obviously now. It's, as you said, you don't, there doesn't have to be an antagonism between economics and environment and society. We can work these things out. Not saying we build endless deficits, that's not the way either, but we can work out how to manage, how to get better results for so many more people 
if we manage that better. And I just think our political system is kind of broken. I really worry that our voices are not being heard in Canberra. I'm a very big fan of democratic reform. I love democracy. I think there's better ways to do good democracy. And I, I think COVID, this is just for me, in my opinion, I think the ability of our leaders to handle what is happening to us, whether that be what's happening with the unions down in Melbourne or what's happening with the lockdowns in Sydney, that is the outer limits of these systems' ability to cope with stressors. And if that's mm. the best they can do, we're going to need a better system. Because if that's it, if you're going to be hamstrung and committed to party lines or committed to this or that, the other, like we're in a lot of trouble. We're going to need a system that can handle bigger problems than COVID. And it's a fair and democratic one. I hear you talking about independence and it really, you're not the first person I've spoken to in the last few weeks about this and about that this is the, this is the election of independence. There's a, a mate of mine whose dad, he's in his 90s now, met his mum at a Liberal Party dance in the 60s, all right? And he was saying to him the other day, uh, to my friend, his father was telling him that over time, he was uh, like a rusted on liberal voter, but he was voting for a liberal government that, for example, Fraser, I think let 60,000 Vietnamese refugees in, saved a generation of humans, created like unbelievable humanitarian. This was a conservative government. Um, Howard, for all the things that I disagree with him, Howard took guns off the streets in that country. Could you imagine what that shit fight in Melbourne last week would have been like if there was firearms in our streets, all right? And he said, now this man who's 90 votes green. But he says, I never changed. How I felt about the world never changed. The party has gone so far to the right and it no longer represents who I am. And I, I personally think, Nikki, I think that's important that people understand that they're not who they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. That The party itself has shifted and other parties and other people now operate in that space of just kind of... I don't want to be claiming that I'm anyone, but the 64% of people in Australia who went, their yeah, marriage equality, that's good. Go for it. You know, that's Australia to me. And going for an independent might be scary for some people. Why should people think about perhaps going for an independent and not going with a major party? Well, I have to fess up that I, I have been um, helping the local independent who's just been announced for North Sydney lecturer Carly Tink, on, on climate issues and just been briefing her around that. And it's so refreshing to me. You know, I've, I've voted for every party under the sun in my many years of voting. And I, for me, it's always about the policies, not the politics. You know, I think being rusted on anything is is not sensible, to be honest, because parties change and policies change. You've got to vote for what, what's best for you and for the country. And sometimes we need to be a little bit selfless in that. But to me, I mean, at the state level, I see some amazing things being done by political parties, even in New South Wales, where, you know, I don't agree with everything that they do, but I, I look at Matt Keane on the environment and I think, wow, you know, and there's some serious planning being done. You know, the Department of Planning here has, is doing some amazing stuff about public spaces and, and making that better access, equal access to green spaces and acknowledging how important they, those are. So, look, no government's perfect, but in Canberra we just... I find it really interesting. So working, well, not working with, but advising on with this group, one of the things somebody raised with me was around, they said about our local Liberal member, but he's such a nice guy and he does seem like such a nice guy. He's a moderate. He says, you know, climate change is, is bad and we need to do something about it. Dave Sharma does the same. But when you go online and have a look at politicians' voting records, when you belong to a major party, you have to vote the way you're told to vote. 
except for on marriage equality. You know, the conscience vote is a very, very rare exception. So while somebody, your local member, might genuinely be a moderate, unfortunately, they don't get to express that voice, even when that is the voice of their community. An independent and a group of independents working together have the opportunity to be accountable only to their electorate. That's their political party. And look, Craig Kelly's standing as an independent, so I'm not saying all independents are equal. They're certainly not. You know, there's some crazies out there. We see that all over the place. But the sort of, and it's been women, essentially, that you see the examples in the Zalis and Helens and Catherines and Karen, they're just there because they're so passionate about doing what's best for the country and, for, and representing the people in their electorates. And surely that's what democracy is, should be about. And I don't can't see how we fix the system unless we potentially have those people. But, you know, look, everyone has to make their own decision and they have. But as I said before, that be curious. Like get out there and find out why. Think about what this person stands for. Go to town halls, ask questions. If you're not happy with your representation from your party, ask the questions of them and of the independent, if you're lucky enough to have one, to say, all right, well, what is your view on this? How are you going to do that? Because Gosh, what a precious gift democracy is, you know. Not every country has the right to cast that vote. And while some people might think it's a pain and they might not feel like they have somebody they can believe in, I tell you what, it's a lot better than the alternative. Just a moment away from Nikki Hartley to let you know that uh, we'll be back here on Wednesday with uh, another episode of Better Make It Quick, which is the shortened Wednesday version because I've got heaps of episodes, over 400 chats that I've had on this show since 2013. And you might not have an hour and a bit to to get another podcast in your day. So Breeze put them together and they're, they're fantastic. They're about 20 minutes long. And I, I love going back and doing them again because it's wonderful to revisit the real golden chunks of, of these fantastic conversations. And um, I really hope they inspire you to then do go back and listen to a full episode. But if not, you're getting the you're getting the greatest hits. You're getting the Hotel California, Life in the Fast Lane, and uh, the Long Run. And that's it. Closing curtain, Pyro. Good night. Um, it's awesome. Anyway, if you hear an ad here, I might have to play an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. If you don't hear an ad, we're back with Nikki Hudley. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When we first met, we were on stage and, and, and you know, we speak about the policy changing, you know, on that night, listening to Dr. John Hewson, who was the former leader of the Australian Liberal Party, listening to the stuff that was coming out of his mouth, I'm like, man, you sound like you're in the, you literally sound like you're in the Greens. Like, <laughs> listen, and it's, all that's coming out of his mouth is empathy and compassion. That's it. 
you can be a person with empathy and an economic rationalist at the same time. They don't have to be separate things. In fact, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, having empathy can lead to excellent economic outcomes down the track. And this is this is the whole idea that we're talking about, which I love. But you also did mention that in your job working with the Climate Council, you are privy to some harrowing facts. And I can't imagine what it's like to be you. I can't imagine the briefings you get. I can't imagine the graphs you see. You know, I know Hans Rosling tells us to be aware of straight lines, but I can't imagine the hockey sticking you see on some graphs that make you shudder. How do you, Nikki, how do you still get up every day and enjoy your, you know, your morning walk within your radius, you know, pat your dog or, you know, see the people you love or talk to your kids about their future and their and your potential grandkids? How do you, how do you do it? You know what? Some days it's really, really hard. Um, I had a bit of a dummy spit on on the weekend. We normally have our kids are all grown up and have left home, but the two that still live in Australia normally would come for family dinner on a Sunday night uh, with their partners, and you know we have these lovely, lovely conversations, and they keep me honest. But it's, it's on Zoom at the moment. But I was having a bit of this, you know, oh everything's stuffed, and I'm worried about climate change, and nobody cares about anybody, and you know we're all we're all doomed, and, and they're oh, my, come on, you know, you're making change. This is happening, you know, come on. And, you know, it really is, it sounds really corny, but it is the next generation. And look, everyone has a bad day, but then there is, you just get these little moments of bliss. The weekend before last, the boat shed down at um, Lane Cove is, is open. So we hired a kayak and we got one, my daughter and husband who live in the area got another one and we spent an hour on the Lane Cove River. And the sun was shining, it was 28 degrees, and it's just this moment of bliss. And I have to capture those, what a counsellor once said to me was, you know, mine the gems, keep those gems and polish them up. And you you do, you absolutely have to hang on to your optimism that we can do something. There are great people out there. I'm fortunate enough to work with so many of them that are out there trying to shift the job to change things. And there are so many people who are, are good and you know, when you see things like riots, you've got to remember there are some scary people doing really awful things, but they are a very, very small minority. There are so many amazing people doing incredible things, and you absolutely have to hang on to that. It's not being Pollyanna. It's not saying bad things don't happen or, you know, that you don't have bad days. But I absolutely inherently believe that the world can be better, that I can help do things to make it better, however small. And I owe it to my kids and their generation to keep doing that. So when I'm in my bleakest days and I do have very dark days, that's the thing that gets me out of I'm from I'm out from under the doona. <laughs> I, I know that doona all too well, Nikki. It did smother me for quite some time, almost permanently, to be honest. We did also touch on this and I would love to get your thoughts on it. There are, and I understand, I totally understand because I've felt it. There are people who are like, why would I even want to bring kids into this world? You're talking about temperature rises and, and extreme events and economic blah, 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 blah. You've got incredible children, as you mentioned. What would you want to tell someone who's worried about bringing kids into this world? I often joke that, you know, I, I don't do anything without doing a cost-benefit analysis, including getting married. If you did a cost-benefit analysis of having children, you wouldn't have children but that's only because economics can only measure so much and the joy that you get from your kids. I mean, I could give you economic arguments about, you know, or say you you could have the next Einstein because you could just as easily have the next, well, let's not name names, but, you know, 
something else. But the joy that you get from your your children to watch them grow into functioning, caring adults, to take you outside of yourself. It's the selfless gene. Becoming a parent, as you well know, when you don't have kids, you don't actually have to think about anybody else. When you have kids, you are forced to be selfless. And that's a really, really good thing. And there is no amount of economic methodology that could ever put a price on that. The the joy amidst the, you know, our middle one didn't sleep, test didn't sleep through the night for four years. You know, that sleeplessness was not much fun. But I watch her now, you know, she's working on inclusion and diversity in her day-to-day work. She's out there advocating for the rainbow community. I mean, you know, what a beautiful human being. You just, how can I put a price on that, you know? And, yes, I do worry and I do think, well, if I were their generation, I'd be saying, why would I want to bring somebody into the world when the world is so bleak? But, you know, what? human beings have this incredible power to get it right and sometimes we need to be backed into a corner. There's a saying that was written in The Economist magazine quite a while ago now, that Australia is a very poor manager of prosperity but a great manager of adversity. And I think many humans are like that. When things are going well, we just kind of go, yeah, right, whatever. But when things are bad, we actually do get our shit together and, pardon the French, and we go, okay, this has gone too far. We're going to do something about it. And I think there is this groundswell of support for us to act on climate. You know, we saw recently the polling by the Australian Conservation Foundation. Every single electorate in Australia has a majority of people who believe we should act on climate change. You know, we have incredible scientists Inventing, you know, ways to stop cows from farting, you know, to, I mean, I'm a vegan, so I don't care, but, you know, for, for those who choose to eat meat, isn't that isn't that fantastic? Who are looking at ways to do all sorts of things with, with green hydrogen. Technology is just exponentially rocketing, literally rocketing out of, out of Earth and, and orbiting. If we can use those resources to make our planet better, and so many incredible human beings are, at this point in time, working out ways to turn carbon into good things, to make the planet better, to help lift Indigenous Australians and others facing disadvantage. You know, when you see the good in humanity, the joy of a great book, a beautiful sunset, you know, there's so much joy in life. Um, Yeah, getting tutors myself now, you know, to be able to share that with your kids, there is just no more beautiful feeling. Nikki, you are an absolute gift to our community and I am just so grateful that I met you and I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation. I can't tell you how many people you have helped today. Someone who does your job, who influences the people who influence, who makes the calls you make and helps people make better decisions about our future, that your heart is behind all of those things, that helps me today and I'm so bloody grateful for it, Nikki. I'm really grateful. If people do want to support you, how can they best support the work you're doing? Look, I just say get involved in, in something, get involved in your local movement, whether it's supporting your local independent, um, supporting a not-for-profit, get informed, find out about things, be curious, don't judge, and just find your own way, find your passion for what what is it what it is that you want to do to help people. There are a million platforms that you can get out there in the community. Don't just sign online petitions, actually join a group and make that change, make conscious decisions about the things that you do and hold others to account. Because whilst you personally might not be responsible for that that much carbon in, in the atmosphere, you choose to buy things from companies that do. So make sure you hold them to account, check out your investment, get involved.
Amazing. Final episode of Ted Lasso tomorrow night. <sighs> I'll be thinking of you. <laughs> I'm still on season one, so I've got to Oh, recording. my God. Oh, season two is amazing. <laughs> oh, so good. All right, you're a legend. Have a great night. Bye. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Roger. Cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Nikki Hutley. Isn't she a weapon? She's fantastic. I hope that gave you something to think about, and I hope you gave you something to think about when you're listening to politicians talk about technology, not taxes, or, or whatever. Like, there's economic interventions that need to happen in markets sometimes, particularly in markets like ours. And, you know, government policy is, is important. You know, something like JobKeeper or JobSeeker, that's a massive economic intervention, you know. So for a government to say they don't intervene and its market should take care of itself, well, that's bullshit. They fucking do when they want to. So as you're listening to politicians talk to you about what their policies are and what they'll reflect, what policies they'll reflect, and, you know, politicians in your seat that may say all the right things, but they have to vote on party lines, like, really think about that. Your vote really matters, really, really matters. And as I said before, like... Good and strong climate action policy, that is good and strong economic policy and good and strong health policy and good and strong social policy. But it starts with climate policy because if you fuck that up, then all the gaff tape falls off and the thing falls apart. But as Nikki said, there's a ton of upside. There's jobs and growth if we want them. We just have to say we want them and we do that by voting. So thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with Nikki, she's great. Nikki Hutley, N-I-C-K-I-H-U-T-L-E-Y is who she is. She's also NikkiHutleyEconomics.com.au. Thanks for being a part of the show. Back here on Wednesday, thank you to Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Andy Ma, my audio producer, uh, Bruce Deal on research and production, and, of course, Toe Hider, the brilliant Toe Hider on music. I'll see you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 